Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with actor Mike Fenton-Stevens. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How lovely to be here on this uh, on this gorgeous day. Let's all. Um, oh, I feel I feel like locking myself down. <laughs> well, that's lucky because <laughs> you'll have to from oh, tomorrow. Oh, that's good. All right. Well, that's how brilliant. How fantastic. I hate seeing people. I hate going out. I hate all that shopping stuff and you know working. It's so annoying. Fantastic. And just sit here and get pissed. Fresh air, you know, screw that. Who who wants a crowded train? (laughs) No. Whereabouts are you actually in the world then? I live in Tunbridge Wells in Kent. So I'm in a very fortunate position because I live in a lovely leafy, green, low-level COVID area with countryside walks all around me. And, uh, you know, and lots of lucky people who can, to a large extent, uh, I'm not saying this is true of everybody in Tunbridge Wells, but there are a lot of people in Tunbridge Wells who would basically be working in the city yes. and are now working from their uh, from the the spare spare room. You know those sort of people. Oh, I'll go in the box room. Oh, you've got a box room, have you? Oh, that's marvellous. How lucky for you. <laughs> you know, so yeah, they're all working on um, super fast computers with very good broadband, and you know the life is life is not so bad for them, but for for many other people, I appreciate that that uh, my world must look like paradise in comparison. And you mentioned the the fact of of being at home is no problem. Is there some truth in that? So, as an actor, uh, performer, I would imagine you tell me if I'm wrong that life is a lot of travel, being away from home, uh, yeah, taking opportunities, uh, and you know, going with what other people suggest. So, is absolutely is six months of not having to do that frightening or is there some element no quite quite relief to it no quite pleasant i have to say yes it's true that uh, this year i would have been i would have spent most of the year on the road Mm. had i carried on with the job that i was about to start in april and that then was was delayed and then cancelled you know so i was going to do a tour of a play and it was going to cover i would have done it up until about now and then i'd be going into pantomime so uh you know that and uh i had some filming to do in italy and uh, a job in Spain, so nice jobs, but uh, but it would have I would have been away from home most of the time. So yes, it is. I, I haven't done uh, well. I've done fuck all. Apart, I think within the house That's that a would be my term. For, it is a technical term. In fact, you know, I mean, if you look it up, it means really, really nothing. <laughs> I mean, really, not even. Oh, look <laughs> at that cobweb! I must take that cobweb down one day. You know, no, no. I've just looked at it. I've just sat and looked at all the things in the house that need doing. And I haven't done any of them. So instead of going, right, well, here's an opportunity to, you know, completely redecorate the house. No. You know, but I have managed to make 
well, so far released 45 episodes of a podcast and uh, and many more on the way, I have to say. I've spent my entire time doing basically what we're doing, which is talking to people on Zoom. And tell me, had that podcast been a project that was happening anyway, or is that literally something brand new because of lockdown? It was a project that I'd just started, mm-hmm. so I, I didn't know we were going to look down. Uh, I actually thought, I decided before Christmas last year that I would have a go at it. So I got in touch with a number of people to sort of um, to see if the idea had wings, you know, and uh, or legs, if that's what they, most people say. Uh, yeah. So um, I hate that term. <laughs> anyway, I, I had a good go at it. And uh, and I sent it off to people, you know. So if you basically if you email Stephen Fry, mm. and and then he emails you straight back with, "Oh my dear chap, what a what a lovely idea!" <laughs> you know, I'd, I'd love to spend an hour talking about things I want to put in a time capsule. Marvelous! And I said, "Great, okay," uh, you know. And then Mark Gatiss came back and. Uh, Arthur Smith and uh, Chris Addison and Rufus Hound and Griffiths Jones and you know Rebecca Front and all sorts of people suddenly came back and said, "Yeah, that sounds great, fun, Mike." Mm-hmm. And not because they were being locked down, but but because they just thought, "Yeah, I'm happy to spend an hour in your company talking about this." So we start a lot of them. I did then, you know, before lockdown, I, I went to people's houses or we met at places and we did that. And then suddenly it was I was aware, oh oh god, I can't carry on doing this. This is annoying. So I tried this process, mm-hmm. and it was difficult to begin with. I mean, it was um, it didn't work. I have to say, there were a number of things I did, number of interviews I did with people where it just didn't work. Uh-huh. The, the sound didn't work. It's this has all improved over the last nine months. So obviously, the people who who run it have been working on it hard. But it, or without doubt, almost every recording you did before on Zoom like this, if I was talking and you talked, either my voice would dip and fade away or yours would dip and fade away. And that was the case on the recording. And it meant you couldn't have a proper conversation. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it still does that a bit every now and again. And I, I cover myself by making sure that, uh, for example, that, that you know, I have other ways that I'm recording it as well, backups. You know, that's what I tend to do. But, you know, for, for just having a chat now, this is fine. This and FaceTime and Skype, and you can record them all. They work well. I know that the BBC use clean feed as well on top of that. So they would, uh, God, it took them a long time to work that out. This is the British Broadcasting Corporation. It took them months to work out how to record things. It was quite extraordinary, wasn't it? Mm. The rest of the world was going, okay, right, what do I do? Let's see. Let's try this. Let's, you know, I mean, look at the archers. Look how long it took them to work out that they could do scenes with people in different places. You didn't have to be in the same studio. In fact, I don't think they still quite work that out. They're still struggling to make the archers. And you go, but, you know, they're all actors, but most of them are voiceover actors, the people who do the archers. They must have microphones. You put them on and you get a good internet connection or you know, they record it there and put the microphone going into a little proper little US, you know, little recorder, HD recorder, and then they'll send you that file and you'll have a really good quality file of it. It's easy. Mm. Why are you struggling? And, we, and that's, you know, I mean, that's been the case right through the whole thing. We've watched the so-called experts mm. really cock things up, haven't we? Uh, you know, I mean, uh, are you... I'm pretty sure that anybody under the age of 30 will know somebody, will have a friend sitting in a small flat who could have designed a better app than the COVID app. 
that cost twelve billion pounds. Mm. And with the, with the a lot of the so I, I do music and acting and stuff, and we've we've done online mm. gigs and streams and all that malarkey. Yeah, and to begin with, a lot of the technology just wasn't as good as you would expect it to be. So you know, no, there was and it's great, surprising, wasn't it? Yeah, great disadvantages to Facebook and some of the other things. I think Zooms obviously had a a, a great time, but it's taken mm. a bit of getting your head around for a lot of people. But actually, it's yeah. meant that the technology, hopefully, by people more um, more exciting than me, maybe, have actually pushed some of these technologies and made them more useful. And that, you know, things may even continue when things are a bit more back to normal. We might still mm-hmm. be able to work in those ways, which might be a silver lining of the situation. It may well be. I mean, for example, you know, if I'm doing, a, if I was doing a a radio recording. I do radio recordings for Doctor Who, Doctor Who dramas with big Finnish productions. And we go to the studio. We have a lovely time. It's really nice mm. to be in a room with lots of other actors and sitting there all telling anecdotes. And then we go in and record each scene in turn. We all stand in our own booth with our own microphone. Each voice is taken, recorded in isolation, and then they're mixed back together again. Yeah. Now, in fact, as we know, those booths could be our own offices. Mm-hmm. We don't have to get on the train and go to London and be provided with lunch. We could all be here uh, at, at home doing this. you know. And so, in fact, that may turn out to be a much cheaper way for them to do it in the future. Not as much fun, I have to say, but you could, you know, I could be involved in one of those things now. You, send, you email me the script and I read it over the, over the internet. There we are, done. And do you think it's possible that in some ways we might get some new new voices doing work like that in the, the sense that you don't necessarily have to be in the position where you can be in a studio in London and all that kind of stuff? Perhaps people from all over can do things. Yeah, it is certainly the business has always been London-centric. And uh, when I first moved out of London to Tunbridge Wells, people sort of looked at me as if I, I'd retired, mm-hmm. you know, or in fact, you know, Maybe I died. Even you, know, you don't. You don't live in London. Oh, that's a shame. Well, I know, but only. I mean, it, you know, I'm 50 minutes away. How far is? You know, where do you live in London? Well, I live in Teddington, right? So, apart from Thames Television, the rest of the world is is an hour away from you, isn't it? In London, it takes you an hour to get anywhere. Yeah, but I, you know, I live in London. Yeah. So that sort of attitude was very prevalent. I think may still be slightly prevalent. Mm-hmm. I've, I've f- spent a lot of time persuading um, <clears throat> advertising agencies and voiceover companies that I can be in London within an hour. I can be in Soho from my house in about an hour. You know, but, uh, uh, if ever, if you say to me, "Come now," I'll say, "Okay." What time is it? I'll be there in an hour. And, let's say an hour and fifteen minutes, mm-hmm. which is no quicker than no slower. Than, than if I was actually sitting in a cafe in the middle of Soho, really. You know, and uh, like the old days, you paged me. <laughs> you page, ring your voiceover agent, and then you go to a telephone booth. And, hello? Hello? Yeah? And they said, right, go to this studio and do a voiceover. <clears throat> I know actors who, um, who basically spend all day sitting in, in Greek Street drinking you know cold coffee, waiting for that pager to go beep, beep, beep. Beep, beep, beep. With the podcast, then, it seems that you're in a, an enviable position in that you have a pool of people that you've worked with over the years who you can approach and they're, they're quite keen to do it. Is it? That is enviable, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Not, not a situation I've necessarily been in, although I've been looking. And again, I think I've had the experience of people have been available who may not have given me the time of day to chat because they are just at home. And I've spoken to some really 
interesting people. Um, yeah. Which is great. You know, I've learned an awful lot just from chatting to people. And again, the, I, I love podcasts. The reason that I started this about a year ago is because I was listening to loads of them. And it was, yeah, well, indeed. You know, I love them, you know, and, and they can have a fairly small niche audience, but a, a, mm-hmm. a loyal little audience. And it's a great way of getting stuff from people that, as an artist and a creative, kind of on the, the early ish bits of my career, you might hear stuff that you don't hear so often. And it can be encouraging. Um, and also hear how, yes, indeed. how difficult it can be it, for people as well. Inspiring, in fact. You know, I mean, that's the thing you can hear and you go, oh, I see. Mm-hmm. That's a good idea. That, that I can see how that works. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, a lot of the things that I've, I've done through my career have all been, do you think that might work? I don't know. Let's have a go. You know, and some things work for a bit and then they, they fade away again. They don't, mm-hmm. you know, so you'll have a great idea and then actually technology or something will overtake you. So, you know, maybe that's what, it, as we talk about it, maybe that's what's happening at the moment that, that when we come out of this, which we will, you know, it will be controlled in some way. It won't be as bad as this all the time. Uh, it may change the way we live our lives, but it, it won't change it as radically as it has done this year. I think that's my theory. Mm. Um, when we come out of it, we may then, as you say, have all these new technologies and these new ways of doing things, which, which, you know, it's absurd not to use them. It's absurd to go back to the way we did it before. So it's absurd, you know, and, and this is it's a hard thing for the, for the air industry to hear, but it's really daft all flying around for meetings all over Europe and, and the, the world going to America and having meetings. Although the Americans do have the most appalling internet system. I have to say for a, a country that is based on, you know, has Silicon Valley. It, it, you, you try and get in touch with anybody in America, and their, their internet connection is awful. Mm. Always is. Anyway, that's that's by the by. Uh, <clears throat> I think that you know, going to those places. So, let, air industry may well turn back into. We don't need anywhere near as many airplanes. Uh, you can make them more luxurious. Luxurious. You can give everybody a really nice meal on it, uh, but it's going to be more expensive. So, if you want to do those things, you do it irregularly you don't do it every friday you don't fly to the united states for a meeting and then fly back again friday evening mm-hmm. it's daft zoom it you know mm-hmm. save the world and you know the same with all sorts of things i don't have to get on a train and go to london every single day to work in an office it's not necessary i can do a lot of this from here yeah people are discovering and so that whole thing of those huge office blocks all being built up and, you know, having your great central building where everybody comes to work for Barclays Bank. Why? Why, you know, just do it from each other's homes. Have a place where you can get together and meet every now and again if you need to, you know, or come in one day a week so you can have a face-to-face. It's always useful. It's nice. You get to know people better. Mm-hmm. But um, <clears throat> with the normal day-to-day running of a business, you don't need that at all. You know, and we don't all need to be. We don't need to be driving everywhere all the time. You know, we don't all need to be plowing, spending two hours plowing around the M25 in one direction for for something, and then getting the car and plow our way back again in traffic jams again to get home again. It's daft. Yes, don't do it. It's not efficient. And in creative sense, you know, those meetings that can be very important, but they may only be half an hour. But the the two or three hours to get there and make them happen, which you can be collaborating with anyone in the world now. Obviously, you need to see people face to face, but you could be in a in a part of a project that's a bit more developed than just having a chat about ideas, maybe. 
Yeah, it's incredibly um, wasteful, isn't it? The whole thing. And not only that, all at the same time. Yeah. We all go around, you know, the M25 is busy between 7 o'clock in the morning and 10 o'clock in the morning, and then it's not so busy. Oh, it's still busy. And then it's busy again between 4 o'clock and 7 o'clock because everybody's coming home again. And you go, well, why are they all doing it at the same time? Why? Why don't people go home and come and travel? At, you know, I never travel at those times if I can avoid it. You know, I'll say to someone, I'll see you at midday, and that means I leave home at 10 when everybody's in the office. Mm-hmm. You know, great. And then if that needs means that that thing needs to be done for a certain thing, I'll go on till nine. And then I come home then when everybody's already come home. You know, anyway, that's because I'm a genius. <laughs> yes. You know, it needed saying. <laughs> You've spotted it. Needed it needed saying. You've Somebody's got to say. I've, I've waited long enough. I've waited long enough for the accolade, but, you know, nothing. <laughs> COVID was just an excuse you knew 30 years ago before the internet was. <clears throat> but that's why I introduced COVID to the world, to, to demonstrate that my ideas were right. Yes, yes, absolutely. You were just waiting for the right moment. <laughs> with, yeah, that, well. with that podcast, um, has there been surprising things that have come up, particularly even with people that you know fairly well? Um, Nearly every episode, uh, I talk to people. And as you say, some of them I know very well. So some are people I've worked with over the years, I've known over the years, and I've got in touch with them and said, do you fancy doing this? And they very kindly said yes. So I don't know them terribly well. Mm-hmm. But we've socialized. We've met at parties and we get on, you know. Or we've done, you know, the odd days filming together and things. It's great. So clearly they're going to talk about things that, that I wouldn't know about them. But very close friends that I've spoken to, you know, people I've known most of my life and think I know well, they will suddenly they will tell me something about their childhood or something that happened, you know, and then, of course, I had open heart surgery. What? When? When, when I was a child. Did you not know that? No, I didn't know that. Why don't I know that? You know, a very one of my closest friends said, and then when I fell off my horse when I was seven and I was hospitalized for nine months. I'm sorry? <laughs> You know, I've, I know everything about this woman. I thought. So yes, it's been a, it's been a revelation for mm-hmm. me, uh, and a really interesting one, because also you you're asking people to look at um, something from their life that they wouldn't normally recollect, as it were. You mm-hmm. wouldn't spend your time trolling back through your memories and think, now what is it about my life? Where is? Where, let me think of the moments that are either. You know, really important because they they created something, or they made me who I am, or they changed the way my life was going, or I was just the most happy. You know, when was what's the moment? Let me think of the moment where I, if I think about it, I go, "Oh yeah, there was nothing wrong with that." When I was there, I was completely happy. Mm-hmm. I was completely content. Wouldn't it be lovely to be able to have that again? You know, and then they talk about those moments, or they talk about those things that made them feel like that. So, you know, an animal they once had that is long gone, you know, dead. But uh, And they may have other animals, but it's still that animal that they think about because it's it's associated with their childhood and, you know, running in the woods and those sort of things. Or, or, you know, a little toy, a piece of cloth, a smell. Somebody shows a smell of their grandfather's pipe. And you can absolutely see how, you know, yes, I, I completely understand how that would take you right back specifically that smell as well. It's not other pipes. You know, she she said every now and again, and you know, somebody will smoke a pipe or I'll, I'll get a whiff of something and think, oh, that's almost it. You know, mm, but she said she point. can't really, can't quite remember what it was, but she'd know it the moment she smelt it. 
And if you could put that in the time capsule so that it, when she opens it, this aroma wafts out. And that would make her extremely happy. So, you know, that's um, it's a lovely thing. It's, it's mm. a lovely thought that, you know. Other people have approached it different ways as well. Some people have, I don't specify what the time capsule's for. I just say we're going to put it in a time capsule. Now, some people immediately go, good, that's good. So that's for me then. Right. So I, I get it. And then anytime I want, I can just open it and have those things, can I? Mm-hmm. You go, if you want. Yeah, that's up to you. And other people say, so we're burying it. So when do you think it might open? Somebody, what, 100 years or 1,000 years? And I go, I don't know. When, when do you want it to open? They go, I think, or I just say in 100 years' time, you know, and we don't know. And then they start talking about what the world might be like then. So you get very different approaches depending on the person. Some people have completely ignored the concept of a time capsule, one or two. Uh, we've started talking, and I've said, so uh, what would you like to put in a time capsule? And they go, well, I don't really know, Mike. But um, you see, the thing I think about, uh, and then off they go again. And I go, okay, fine. Let's just have a chat. Mm-hmm. You know? And that's fine. It's, 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 it is an excuse to have a chat. It's a, it's a chat about things that people wouldn't necessarily talk about. So I'm, I'm like all the best ideas. And I have to say, as it goes on, I'm beginning to think this is a good idea <laughs> because it seems to be working. Um, I'm taken aback by how well it works because it was a, just a moment's thought. It's it, Maybe we sometimes overthink things, as this is a podcast about creativity. Sometimes we, we overthink what we're doing. I certainly think that it's almost impossible for anybody who has any great depth and knowledge about pop songs and a history of pop songs to write a pop song because you just would be too cynical about it mm. or you would, re- you would reject almost every idea you've had. I love you. No, I can't just say, I love you. That's no good. Um, it's been said. She yeah. loves you. She yeah. Lo- yeah. Oh, so, so the Beatles did. She loves you. Um, oh, I, I don't love you. And then that's where you go, go down that road. You know, you, you just become the cynical one. And who wants a love song that says she doesn't love you. It's no good. So it has to be, a bright, fresh-faced young 18-year-old who goes, hey, I've got a great song. It goes, I love you, I love you, I really, 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 really love you. And everybody goes, I love that really love you song, don't you? That's the way the world is, I think. So, you know, let them write them and let us all enjoy their their wonderful naivety, you know. I would love to pick that up, but before we do, I just want to mention that one of my one of the most affecting conversations I've heard from your conversation so far is you and Rebecca Front talking about dogs. Because <laughs> someone I've never owned a dog. Um, the wife yeah. and I are sort of skirting around that issue. Can we do it? Should we'd like to? Why do we want uh, to do it? Can we afford it? All those sorts of questions that I guess everybody mm-hmm. has. And just her talking about, and, and she was very much in that mode. Yeah, wasn't she? she didn't was want sort of, one you know, from we, what I could tell. We, no, we've all we can't have a dog. It's ridiculous living in London. You know? And anyway, and and now it's the best thing she's ever done. Mm. You know. And it was a friend. It was interesting that it was a friend's dog, wasn't it? I think if that had that inspired her, she that's what she chose to put in yeah. was her her friend's dog and a picture. Just in fact, a picture of a friend's dog jumping, jumping a, a lake, you know, a, a river with her son jumping behind her. Yeah. Uh, and you think, so, well, that's gorgeous. But it was that sort of 
the joy of taking their friend's dog for a walk that yeah. made them think, we sh- why have we not got this thing in our life? Yes. You know? And you mentioning your daughter getting dragged along by the golden retriever as well. And then yeah, the, the, yeah. the sort of very human reaction of that dog. And it's just like, oh, that's great. <laughs> and it's sometimes it's like, I know there's a reason I want to do this dog thing. And you hear those and you go, oh, that's it. Not necessarily that children can get dragged around by them, but that sort of no. very, in- <laughs> although maybe, but that kind of um, wonderfully... Similar to what you mentioned about the songwriting, I guess, that wonderful, innocent, simple yeah. needs that are just you can achieve them, which is so difficult with people, isn't it? especially creatives. There's so many things that they need. Well, I think there's a lot of the desire, the other things we're talking about on the podcast are people want to go back to something simple. I was talking to Rufus Hound yesterday, strangely enough, uh, again. I've done a podcast with him, but I'm, I'm in the process of doing – we are putting together for the month of December mm. – my, my Christmas time capsule. Oh, lovely. It's going to be an advent calendar of time capsules, little 10-minute episodes where people talk about either something that they love about Christmas or something that they want to get rid of. <laughs> and that's that's basically it. So we've, we've bastardized my idea and uh, are turning it into a hopefully commercial idea. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Who knows? But um, we'll see what happens. But So I've been actually sort of talking to people again and saying, you know, so what about Christmas? And he... Uh, well, he made, he, I didn't, without doubt, he absolutely made me made me cry uh, talking about Christmas, and that's not difficult, is it? Actually, when you think about it, Christmas is easy. To, you say the right things. We all know the films that that'll do it to us every time. But he was so he was so frank about it and so passionate about it, um, and I just think he was he was saying that. It's very typical of him. He also, at the same time, had a complete rant about the fact that, um, about people saying, we want to get back to a time. Let's go, can't we get back to the time when Britain was great? Can't we, let's make America great again. And and the question is, when was it great? When, do, what, which Britain are you talking about? The one that was full of racism and where women were constantly assaulted and nobody took any notice or is it war to beat your wife? That Britain. Is that the one you want to get back to? Well, no, obviously not that. No, but, you know, when Britain was great, when was this? Hmm. And he says, he thinks that in all cases, what they're saying is, can we please go back to my childhood? Oh, of course. It's that thing of like all of the sum- all of the summers were long and wonderful when I was a child. Yeah. And when I was young and I was, you know, courting, you know beautiful people and all this sort of stuff that it'll never be like that again and of course mm. it's not is it but i think every generation no, goes not. through that yeah but to not recognize it and to turn it mm. into let's vote for brexit mm. uh you know is is to not recognize what you're actually wanting is to go back to a more a world where you didn't really know what the world was about yeah. and, and you know that's what i want i want to go back to a world where i didn't know that there was racism i didn't know there was sexism i didn't notice that women weren't paid as much as men but now i don't like it i don't i noticed all these things that it's not the world isn't fair that people are unhappy and, and uh, people dying all the time i don't what never happened when i was a kid mm. i don't want that and so it's a desperate attempt to get back to a, a more innocent happy time mm. unfortunately people don't see it that way that what they think is they're taking they feel as if they're taking something forward let's move forward to the past mm. you know that's uh, it. It doesn't really work, I don't think. So, unfortunately, we're not happy to accept that the world is complicated and is. But he did say really rather beautifully, apart from Christmas lights in the window, 
which is just gorgeous, a gorgeous concept, because he said people put those up and then they close the curtains. Mm -hmm. So they're not for them. You don't put Christmas lights up for yourself. You put them up for people walking by. And it doesn't matter if those people agree with you. It doesn't matter if those people are of the same religion as you. It doesn't matter if they're politically in agreement with you or sort of people you'd like even. You're doing it just to make them happy, to go, mm. it's Christmas. You know, I know it's dark. I know it's wet. I know it's cold. I know we're all stuck indoors. We're all isolated. The whole world seems to be falling apart. But, you know, there you go. Enjoy the twinkle. Yeah. Fuck it. Especially, no, fuck the dark. Especially this year, a bit of twinkle. Yeah. However we can achieve it is going to be a big deal. But very yeah. sim- very different for a lot of people, and particularly you as well. You've had, a, as you mentioned earlier, I think pantomime has been a very big part of your career and the pantomime game thing as well. So how different, it, it has, is, yeah. feel, how different is Christmas going to feel in that sense this year? Well, do you know, amazingly, um, I, we, uh, we might do it. Ah, okay. It's a, it doesn't, that's, that's really a surprising statement. It keeps surprising me when I think about it. Uh, if we do it, we're going to do it sort of from the moment that they say, okay, it's now the beginning of December, so we're going back to the restrictions we had. Mm-hmm. Now, in the area that I live in, those restrictions would have meant we were able to do a socially distanced pantomime. So we will absolutely get together with masks, rehearse something very quickly, do a, an hour-long pantomime three times a day to 35 kids, and knock ourselves out over Christmas and earn no money and do it because we love pantomime and because it's a, it's a fuck you COVID it's fuck you. If the world is going to be like this, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to go, well, you can't do anything then I am going to do something and I'm going to do something I love. And I do love performing pantomime to children. It's the most exhausting (laughs) hard work that you can imagine pantomime. It's un, unbelievably hard. It's like working down a mine. That's how absurd I'm going to be about the how pantomime. You know, it is. You, you've, you, you pour with sweat. You're absolutely exhausted, and then you go and do another show. You know, it's one of those. You just can't believe the relentless nature of it. And every show has to be completely full of energy and as if the audience is this is the first audience you've done it in front of and you're never going to do it in front of a better audience and it's brilliant fun and the energy involved in doing that is is quite extraordinary Uh, and I don't know why I do it every year my wife says don't do it don't do it don't do it next year you're mad stop and I go yeah (laughs) yeah I know and at the end of every run of a pantomime I say I'm never doing that again that's Jesus Christ, I must be mad. And then they say, Mike, if I see, you know, it's only it's only three weeks. Be fun. We'll only we only need to rehearse for four days. Come on, we're doing the same routines we did, you know, you know the ghost routine. Yeah, I do, yeah. And then you know, you remember the moment of walking on stage in ridiculous costumes with ridiculous amounts of makeup all over your face. God, I'd love to be just walking on and pretending to be Hamlet, you know, or you know, or Hamlet's dad, Hamlet, as I, you know, as I found out the other day. Uh, just you know, easy. Those things, bloody easy. You know, That's- Panto, no. 
Yeah, exactly. And there's a sort of through line with with comedy in general, isn't there? I think, which is there's. Well, you tell me. It still seems as if there's that kind of slight slobby, slobby. That's not what I meant. I meant snobby, <laughs> yeah. snobby, um, element, snobby, sn- slobby, mobby, bobby towards the. Absolutely, there is. Yeah, between, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. But towards <laughs> the petri comedy, and we know actually that if you try and think of really perfect comedy films, mm-hmm. you won't think of that many. No. No, I know exactly what you're saying. You say that, you know, if you look at it, the history of, of entertainment, it's absolutely rammed with great dramas. It's rammed yeah. with great, you know, heavy literature. You read them and you go, this is amazing. But a very funny book or a very funny film or a, or a play that you've just come up and go, oh, my God, that is just what a, I've had one of the funniest evenings of my life. You know, there's um, there's a couple of moments i think not necessarily the whole play but there are moments in almost certainly all the early alan eggborn plays which are just moments if you've never experienced them in a theater you should uh where you will laugh uncontrollably at the situation he's he's a genius at creating those situations you know there are plays that um because of through longevity really so charlie's aunt Charlie's Aunt is one of the most joyous things to go and see. It's a, it, it's almost impossible to, to mess it up. You know, you'd have to be really, I have seen it messed up, but you, <laughs> it's possible. you know, you'd have to be really bad on to really not get comedy to mess it up. In fact, the great thing about Charlie's Aunt is that it's, it's full of stage directions and what they are are stage directions taken from performances of it, which really work. So there's a moment in it where, uh, Char- where, um, yeah, he he walks. He's wearing all the dame. He's wearing all the the woman costume, and he, he gets offered a cigar by, you know, the sort of uh, the older gentleman in it who quite fancies him. And he says, "She's smoking on." He says, "You know, do I, do I not get one?" And the fellow said, "Oh, <laughs> dear lady, I'm so sorry, but I'm, if you'd like one." Well, yeah, yeah. Because at this stage, he's desperate to do anything manly. He's fed up with wearing this dress all the time. He says, so he lights a cigar, you know, rather gentleman. Then they walk along. They walk up and down the stage, and basically he's got an enormous fan, which has been a very funny prop throughout the show. And every time he takes a puff of it, he puffs the cigar, and then it describes walking up the thing and waving this fan, and therefore blowing the smoke all over the man walking beside you. It's an infallible routine. If you do it as written in the script, it gets gales of laughter. It's it's amazing. So there are things like that. But I agree with you. Comedy is not easy. Comedy and and um, although at the same time, I've heard a lot of um, I've worked with a lot of very serious actors who say, "Oh, I can't do comedy," and you go, "Yes, you can. You can. You just don't understand what it is. You think it's something different." Whereas, in fact, comedy is not different. Comedy is the same. It's just when you know that you're saying a line in a tragedy that will probably have an effect on people in the sense that it will make them, it will shock them, or hurt them, or move them. In comedy, you're saying the line, thinking this will amuse them, but you mustn't let you don't let people know in a tragedy. You don't twirl your moustache yeah. and go, and go. In that case, I'll probably kill you. <laughs> you know, you don't. You you know, it, you you do. You go as subtle as you can in order to make it all the more disturbing and frightening. And the same is true of comedy. The moments that you know are funny. They're the most serious moments for a, for a comic actor. Mm-hmm. They're the moments where you absolutely mean what you're saying. 
you know. And the best yeah. sitcom does that as well, I think. You know, sort of think yeah. a, a sitcom that you've been involved with, Only Fools and Horses, the elements in that where Rodney's lost his baby and all these kinds of things because you're so invested mm. in those characters the royal family i think did the same thing as well oh brilliantly brilliantly i mean really really moving and sad uh, and then just with a killer funny line something so out of those terrible tragedies you know, and it's true you can't have a great tragedy you can't have a great drama without it having comedy in it you it, there has to be moments where you laugh uh, for it to, to reflect real life that's uh, you know so in a really frightening play or drama or film there's the moment where you go oh oh god (laughs) so that's that's the great moment you know when you think oh i'm safe and you laugh at your silliness for being scared and then you get scared they're the moments you'll remember if you're just scared it happens all the time but to think you're safe to laugh to feel relaxed and then be made scared again they're the moments that you 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 will absolutely hold on to they're the moments, you know, in Jaws, where you go, oh, God, it's just a, oh, it's just, a, oh, God, it's someone's head. It's a, oh, fuck. <laughs> then, then there you go. So, you know, the same is true of comedy. Yeah. That, you know, when you think, oh, no, no, this has really gone quite serious now. You know, there's a, there's a line in Only Fools and Horses in the episode that I appeared in where Rodney and, and Dell are sitting in the, in the bar and Cassandra goes to the toilet, and Rod and Rodney says to him, "Look, Dell, I need your help. I, I, look, if we're going to go to Spain, me and Cassandra, then I think you know, I mean, our relationship may, you know, ascend to a higher plane, possibly, you know, and and I, I think if that's going to happen, then I should um, I should take caution and be, you know, prepare myself, get be, be cautious, get something to protect." myself. Do you understand what I'm saying? He goes, yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's very, very mature of you, Rodney. Very, you know, very adult. Yeah. He said, so yeah. And he says, well, I, I went to the, you know, mini mart. He said, I've got a comb and a, all sorts of things. He said, but I just, you know, I, I mean, I didn't really, I couldn't bring it up because I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? I mean, there's a stigma attached and, uh, Adele looks at him from it. This is a very serious conversation between two brothers about, you know, having safe sex and he says, it's a stigma attached. And then Rodney says, no, that's a bit of silver paper. You throw that away. <laughs> and it, because it comes out of this moment, this quiet moment of seriousness between that's them, awesome. where they seem to be showing affection towards each other, it's all the funnier. It's a, it's a, and, and I think that's a, one of the great clues to comedy is, is that you have to believe that those two are seriously looking out for each other at that moment before one of them completely misinterprets what the other says. Mm-hmm. Genius. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it, and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows the people are listening. Thank you. You've worked on something like that. You've, you've worked... Um a lot of things that have been in kind of that level of success and great writing. And yeah. yeah, one foot in the grave, Mr. Bean, all those, you know, Mr. Bean is a different thing because to a large extent that's mime. You're mm-hmm. not saying anything. So in fact, you're, you're, you're demonstrating everything through thought. Through, and I, you know. I guess when you worked on those, there were certainly only fools and horses was already a 
a big success and an established It was, success. yeah, yeah. But yeah, and Mr. Bean, they were all big shows by the time I worked on them. So you would have known that the right, the, the writing on those was great and all the rest of it, I would imagine. But some other things that you've done where it's not so sure, you're not sure, is it possible to tell when something's going to really work or is it sometimes a surprise? You, you're never gonna, you can't tell when something's going to really work, but uh, you, can, you can always recognise really good writing, a really funny writing, and particularly funny performers, you yeah. know, when you're working. So the first time I, I worked with Julia Davis, you know, I was aware that I was working with someone who was quite unique, I think. Mm-hmm. And really what's extraordinary about her is that she's been so um, controlled in the amount of work she's done. Right. You know, she, she's, John, you know, she sort of does it if it's right. And the rest of the time she's quite happy to live her life and look after, you know, bring up her children and, you know, get on with things. She's not pursued fame at all, whereas she could have done. Mm-hmm. She Definitely, when we did Nighty Night, it, there was a huge fuss made about it, and she could have, she could have pursued that to the probably to the detriment of other things in her life, and she chose not to. She just went, "Now, well, we'll see what comes up next, and see if I can think of another idea." You know, but it, she wasn't going to rush into it, and uh, and you know, she was just. I think when you work with people, and you do recognise immediately that people have got something really special. A lot of good actors about. Lots of people I love working with, and they're really enjoyable to work with. And they they know their craft. They're very skillful. They do it well, and it's fun to do it with them because that's the sort of level I put myself at. But every now and again, you work with someone you think, "So wow, oh my god, I'm never going to be you. I'll never keep. I don't know how I'm going to keep up with you. You're so good at this. You're so quick. The the speed of thought that you have, that the skill with which you you know." build in such detail into what you're doing without doing anything. You know, those things that you immediately recognize in people. David Tennant, I would say, was somebody like that, who I, I worked with him when he was a very young actor, and it was very obvious that he was going to be um, huge. In fact, I did try to persuade him when it was announced he was going to be Doctor Who that he shouldn't do it. I said, don't do it, David. No, you're mad. And he said, well, I, I, loved, I love Doctor Who. I've always loved Doctor Who. I said, well, you may love Doctor Who, but you're going to be Doctor Who for the rest of your life. You'll be stuck with it. Don't throw your career away on, on Doctor Who. It'll be five, six years of your life. You'll be well paid. You'll be famous. But that's who you'll be for the rest of your career. And I was wrong. He's, he was too good for that. He was able to do it and then move on and become you know, David Tennant. So, you know, yeah, he used it as a stepping stone, really, rather than it's something that defined his career, which so well done him, because mm. I'm glad, because it would have been awful, I think, if all we ever saw of David Tennant was him uh, at conventions, you know, or coming on to things dressed as, the you know, Doctor Who. So that's great. Emma Thompson, when I met her, when she, I was a very young actor, before I was an actor, in fact, she, we were both students, and it was clear as a bell, absolutely clear as a bell, this woman was a could do anything and beautifully you know she could sing she was funny she was moving she, she just seemed to demonstrate you know you knew exactly what she was thinking without her ever showing you what she was thinking on stage just she had all the skills so it would have been a, an absolute travesty had she not become a major star olivia coleman i, I did her very first television job and uh and all of us working on it. I mean, without fail, without fail, every every single member of the cast at some point during the week went, bloody hell, that girl's good, isn't she? Mm. 
You know, we all recognized that she was you know, beyond what we could do, and she'd only just started. So and th- that's great. With those people, then, is that a kind of natural ability or – because something certainly in the world of like musicians and performers in music and I guess writers as well is this thing that there are some people who have that but more often it is just a continued development and work I've spoken to a few writers for the podcast I spoke to David mm-hmm. Quantic and I was like what, yeah. what percentage of uh, stuff that you've written never sees the light of day and he was like 90% and you're like yep. fuck <laughs> so yeah. for someone who's a successful person to still be having to not chuck away but not make the most of 90 percent of the stuff that they've done so i guess what well I'm i think asking- that i think oh, i sorry. think what that demonstrates no it's all right no I, I, i'm always interrupting people i do apologize sorry. i can't believe that i do a podcast where i have to sit and listen to people can you <laughs> you know uh, anyway the the um i think that demonstrates particularly david there you know that would be true of all of them i think you know all the writers that i've known david rennick and annie hamilton and all, all the uh, richard curtis great swathes of stuff that they write just never sees the light of day mm. but um often because of their own judgment they will go no it's not good enough you know so they they'll hold it back you know and i think that's true you're saying that they demonstrate what actually in the end will turn you into somebody really good and i think that you know with say olivia and emma and david david they they definitely had a natural skill for it but also they worked really hard at it they loved it, you know. They they never became bored with the study of it, mm-hmm. and so um, you know. And they're very bright. They're bright people, you know. They, they they've used their intelligence to to sort of go, you know. Well, that's enough. Actually, I don't need to do more than that. People will understand what I'm doing, mm. you know. And quite often, that fear that people aren't going to understand what it is you're thinking or what it is that you mean by something will lead you down the path of, of over demonstrating it. Do you know what I mean? Over, mm. over emphasizing stuff because you're worried that people, do you understand that I'm angry at this point? I, would, I, I better really furrow my brow then. And, and I don't blame soap operas for the soap opera actors for this. I blame soap opera directors for it because they will push you down that road. They will say, mm. yeah, mm, need more. You know, and it is true, there is a percentage of the audience out, uh, out there that, that likes you to absolutely demonstrate what you're thinking. They want to see what you're thinking written on your face. They don't like to not know. I'm watching a murder mystery, and I need to know who the baddies are. So be a baddie. So the moment that you've gone, absolutely, Vicar, yes, of course. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. And they shut the door. You go. <laughs> He's a wrong gun. Yeah. Oh, and they love it. They watch the telly and go, I think he's a baddie. I don't trust him. <laughs> I've worked you know? it out. Yeah, and I've worked it out, and they like that. Other people, no. I don't want to know what people are thinking, or, you know, I'll I'll get it by the end. Or, in fact, it was nice to know, to not know. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if they, are they bad? Are they, in, are they naturally evil? I don't yeah. know. I used to be in a long-form improv group, and one of the things we did was um, an improvised murder mystery. And the audience decides, so you do all your thing, and obviously you spend all the time trying to implicate yourself in the murder. Well, they picked who got murdered, and then the rest of you would try and implicate yourself in as many ways as possible. And then before Mm. the interval, the audience, or near the end, the audience would decide who the killer was. And often you could hear people going, I was right. I knew it was that person. I knew from the (laughs) No, you fucking told us. You picked it. It didn't really kill anyone. I know. It's <laughs> yeah. weird, isn't it? I know. I did a show like that in the West End. I did a thing called Scissor Happy, which was a, a, basically started off as a play. So it was a scripted play mm-hmm. uh, set in the hairdressers and at 
about 20 minutes in, somebody gets murdered. And then I, as a policeman, come in hmm. and interview each person, say, well, you know, we're, okay, nobody leave the building. Everybody go in that room. I'm going to talk to you all individually. I then come out. I interview each person individually about where they were and what they were doing when the murder happened. And then at the end of it, I get everybody back in the room and I say, well, I don't, I don't really know because I wasn't there. But, um, and then you turn to the audience and say, but you were, ladies wow. and gentlemen. So um, I wonder if you would help me interrogate these people. And from there on in, it's improv. From there on in, you say people, you say any questions and people put their hands up. Yeah, why did you go in that room? To, yes, sir, why did you go in that room? You told me earlier you, you didn't go in there. And <laughs> so we then investigate the thing, let the audience How become the investigator. How long have you secretly been in love with the mayor? Oh, I, I didn't know I was, but actually, yes, 20 years. <laughs> and it was very interesting, but it was, a, it, was, it was what was most interesting about it, doing it night after night was how predictable audiences are. <laughs> how, you know, every now and again, somebody would ask a question that you'd not heard, you know, and you'd go, you'd go, whoa, yes, brilliant. We don't know the answer to this one, you know, because in fact, we would have done it night after night. And quite often, we'd already done really good answers to things, things that worked really well. So if somebody asked a specific question, it became less and less improv and more and more memory. Mm-hmm. You know, you'd go, oh, we've yeah, when we had that yeah. question, you did that thing there and you said that. And I, well, we'll do that again because we've got a big laugh. <laughs> uh, so, you know, yeah, in the end, the consistency of an audience pushed us down the route of uh, of not doing our job, you know, which is a shame because it would have been fun if it, if it could have stayed completely free. But it very rarely did. In fact, so much so that there was at one point somebody made a phone call that nobody heard. And people would say, well, who who did you call? And he said, I called my called my wife said, yeah, all right. So, you know, well, and I said, well, I don't know. I mean, what's your wife's, what number did you dial? And he said, my home number, this number. I go, okay. I said, well, do you, well, perhaps you'd like to come up, sir, and, uh, and dial that number and see if it is his wife. And so people would come up and <laughs> that's when the audience thought, oh my God, somebody's come up with something. They've really got him now. You know? And uh, they would dial the number, which went through to the stage manager who went, hello. Hello, who's that? So, uh, she'd say, I'm the wife of, you know. And the people would be astonished. They'd be amazed that you actually had gone into that sort of detail. But why wouldn't you? Mm-hmm. Anyway, going back to what I was saying, I think that um, that those people are great because they they are naturally skillful. They have the tools for it. But at the same time, because they're 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 really dedicated to it and they work really hard. I'm almost, I'm almost certain that the reason that David Tennant was much more skillful with the script than I was is because he'd spent more time working on it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that maybe is the secret. Maybe if you're going to do something, you know, so when you say, God, that bloke's a great guitarist, you know that he put the hours in, but when you see someone who's an actor, you don't naturally think, Oh, well, he's a great actor because he's put the hours in, mm. you know, and I have to admit, I haven't. You know, I, I sort of, um, I, you know, I quite often do about a seat of my pants. I think, you know, I'll be all right. I've done this sort of thing before. That's and then, I, then I get caught out. You know, I get caught out by people like David Tennant and, and think, oh, shit. Oh, They've my God. They're really, I, I've got to really, really up my game here mm-hmm. to look even reasonably good next to them. And then you think to yourself, you idiot. <laughs> I wonder if we could talk a bit then about sort of at the start of your career and that 
the hustle element of things and how mm-hmm. important that's been through your career and if it's changed just in terms of the the culture of, and the you know the way things are in general and also being a more experienced actor yes it's a, a, i think that the great um, tragedy uh, for actors is that more and more i mean we've talked already about technology coming in and being used for all sorts of things but i think it's a great shame that that people very rarely on their first audition nowadays will audition in the presence of the person they're auditioning for. So in the same room, you won't be in the room with the director. He'll look at a video that you've sent in Mm -hmm. taken on your phone Mm -hmm. of you doing the part that he might want you to do. So you have no one, you have no feedback from him. You don't have him saying, yeah, no, I sort of saw it more, you know, more nervous than that. you know, quicker. And you go, okay, fine, I can do that. And you just do it and demonstrate that you are adaptable as an actor, whereas you're just sending in your best maybe, shot. Yeah, maybe two takes, but they don't really want to watch them. They just want you to show that you can do it. And so that self-taping is a bastard, you know. And some people have a great advantage. I've, I immediately, when I came in, thought, okay, they don't want me just holding the phone there or doing the lines. This, I'm going to do the full works, you know. They want a mini film. And I send them titles at the front, fading in, fading out, you know, coming in with me, introduction, with a nice background, well lit, properly. I dress up for it. I then go, then I change clothes into a costume that might suit the character. I place myself in a different room that looks more like where I'm supposed to be, you know. So if I'm, I'm ill in bed, I, I'm in bed looking mm-hmm. ill, you know. And it's, it's just a trick really. And I'm sure there are a lot of actors who just don't do that. They don't think, oh, that's not necessary. But that's like turning up to an audition where they've sent you the script and not realising that they intended for you to learn the lines. You know, that's, it's an absolutely fundamental part of it. Mm-hmm. That, that What you're doing is you're demonstrating to them that you can learn the lines. Mm-hmm. You know, I've turned, and then they can also see you do it without you having to look down at a piece of paper all the time. You can just do it straight into their eyes. You know, and say, this is me acting. Look at me. Concentrate on what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. It, those are great things. But what you miss out on is the other side of it, is maybe the toadying. You know, the, oh, God, I love that thing you did last time. You did directed that film, didn't you? It's fantastic. What a great performance by. Or the making yourself stand out. For many years, I ended up, I got loads of commercials because I would always do something that wasn't in the script. And I would do something that that uh, to make myself stand out. So if I auditioned for an advert for Holland, I would take them tulips. Hmm. Hello, how are you doing? It's a bunch of tulips, just in case you feel homesick. And they'd go, <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, yeah, and they'd put them aside, but they wouldn't forget me. Mm-hmm. Then they might go, oh, God, that was that twit who brought us tulips. But generally, I think they thought, well, I quite liked him. Yeah, I liked him. He was fun. You know, and if you're going to work with people, you, that that may well be the first thing you decide. Do, do I fancy working with this person? I mean, I know he can do it. I've seen him do it. But which one of those five that I saw do it? Can we spend do some I fancy, time with? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll go with the bloke with the tulips. And it's it sort of, you know, it's a trick, but it worked. And it worked a lot. And I would always, even to this day, I've just in a commercial at the moment, one of the few jobs that I have done in during lockdown and, and the whole thing for, for Barclay Card. <clears throat> and which I made with uh, Nick Frost, lovely Nick Frost, brilliant, very good performer and uh, writer. And 
we had a lovely day together doing this filming, but I, I play a sort of a Sherlock Holmes type character and he plays my assistant. Mm-hmm. And all the way through it, he's talking directly to the camera about, you know, credit. How do you get credit scores? And, uh, and the bar card can help you with that. And right at the end of it, he says, so, you know, he does the sort of sum up to it. And then it cuts to the logo of the Barclay card. And I, then you hear me say, who are you talking to? <laughs> now, that's an improvised joke. That was me making it up on the day. But that's an example of the sort of thing that I did. A long time ago, there was a campaign for I'm only, I know I'm only talking about commercials here, but they're the ones that stick in my mind, I'm afraid. Um, I, I did a, an audition for uh, Kellogg's Cornflakes. They decided they were going to relaunch Kellogg's Cornflakes uh, and go back to with the, the lovely concept of have you forgotten how good they are, which, again, is that, that pandering to your childhood, mm-hmm. childish, childish side, really. Very good idea for a campaign. So the campaign was, you know, the first advert in this whole campaign was a dad trying to get his child to eat cornflakes and going, come on, come on, open up. Here comes the train into the tunnel. Kid resolutely keeps his mouth shut. So dad says, no, look, you know, daddy likes them. Mm, yum, yum, yum. Mm, oh, these are yummy. Oh, I love the, mm. and then he takes a mouthful of it and goes, in, oh, 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 and it just sits there and starts eating the bowl. And then it says, Carlos cornflakes, have you forgotten how good they are? <laughs> nice campaign lovely idea when i auditioned for it when the person said that line i then turned to my imaginary child and said Do you want a bit of toast and that was in the advert and all the adverts that came after that uh, had a comeback line <laughs> like that you know so after the in a way the credits for the product as a little comedy line and they didn't. They didn't think of that. They didn't write that. You know, it. It sometimes it works. It's weird. It works sometimes. Sometimes it doesn't. I did a, a an audition for the Ford car. You know, when it was first launched, and uh, and it was basically a man looking at a Ford car going round on a revolve, and this revolve gets faster and faster and faster, and basically you would shake your head from side to side. Well, I was good at that. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was I was very committed to shaking my head, and they obviously decided this is the man for me. And on about the third audition for this thing, because they, you know, launching a big new car, they they brought me in with a whole executives, everybody from Ford, and and you know, Mike do the okay, great to see you again, Mike. Yeah, yeah so le- just do the um, the head thing. And I went, <laughs> okay, I did it. Everybody laughed. Brilliant, fantastic. Right, Mike. See you soon. Okay, we'll be. Yeah, we can talk to your agent later. And as I was leaving, I said. Um, you know the end line that you've written for for this. You know it's good for the new Ford car. Why don't you take one for a spin? You see what they've done there. Mm. And I said, I said, yeah. I said I was thinking about it. Don't you think it'd be better if you said the new Ford car revolutionary? And the the room went cold <laughs> <laughs> because I'd come up with a better line than they'd spent months on their baby. Months yeah. Of, oh, they sat in meetings and had a persuaded Ford that this was the best idea that could be come up that anybody could come up with. And this bloody actor (laughs) had had a better idea and they all knew it. We all knew that my line was better, but no way they were going to hire me. Mm -hmm. We don't want to get rid of him now. Anyway, so there you are lessons in life. Well, that's what I was going to ask with that. Like the, it must take a certain amount of confidence in an audition 
to sort of go, have you thought of, I had this idea, because if you just pointed out, it could go in a fantastic way or it could scupper you getting the job. And make you yeah, like I would have. I would always hope in those situations that what you'd be demonstrating is that you want to be part of the process, that you want to be part of the creative process. You and I understand to be, that... To be good as well, that's the other thing. Yeah, it's not just and to show you. that you want... You under you want it you you want to contribute. You don't just you know you're not an automaton that just takes direction and says you know this is what I want to do. You know you what you want me to do. Okay, I'll do it. You know, but you know some actors work like that. It's fine. I'm not one. I'm not one of those actors. I'm always oh hang on a minute. Wouldn't it be funny if or don't you think it would be better if I do all the time say that? And some directors find that annoying. Uh, when I've worked with them, I'm aware of that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. Yeah. All right. No, look, can we just do what what's written? Yeah, okay. I just thought it might be funnier. You know, we could look at it, couldn't we? Wouldn't hurt to just try it. You know? And uh and some people go, Yep, great idea, Mike, let's try it. You know, it it's uh it depends on it, but some people like to be more in control. They don't like actors to, in a way, be inventive. Mm. They want them to do what they're told and do it well, but they don't want them to be part of the creative process, whereas I think actors really should be part of the creative process. It, it's, it's important. You know, that means even rewriting. You know, I did a production a long time ago, very lovely cast of very well-known um, serious actors. I was not well, a well-known serious actor, and uh, I played a Venticelli in, in uh, Amadeus, and Peter Schaffer was actually at the rehearsals, all the way through rehearsals there, and... Uh, uh, one lunchtime, <laughs> I had the audacity to, to to say to him, do you think this line would be funnier if I said this? This is a play that had already been a massive hit all over the world and had been on in the West End for, we were doing another, a revival of it. <laughs> and he went, yeah, that would be funnier. See, now, to me, that's a great writer. Mm-hmm. For me, that's a, you know, yes, I thought I'd written perfection, and so did everybody else, and all the reviews said I did, but I'm still willing to to look at something and, and weigh it up. If he'd said to me, no, I'm happy with the way it is, I would have gone, yeah, fine. Mm. Just occurred to me. That's all, just thinking. That thing ab- about working in teams as well, I, I, I was on a songwriting retreat hosted by Ray Davis a few years ago. Oh, brilliant. And one of the exercises was he – it's 15 people on this thing and he chucked us all together to be in bands and looking back they purposefully put you with the people you wouldn't have chosen to work with because the styles were so different yeah. and everything and it was this thing of what well, you know if someone makes a suggestion and you know it's wrong how do you how do you deal with that mm-hmm. and he'd kind of said well the thing is if you try it and they can see that it's wrong they'll accept mm-hmm. that it's wrong but if you say no 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 you no, we can't do that they'll still think it's a great idea and sort of yeah yeah harbor this idea that you've stood on them it's quite interesting because I'm not sure Ray sort of lived up to that in his own band, but still, <laughs> whether the people had suggestions. But yeah, it's that thing of trying. But you an can idea. see the faults. You can see the faults in yourself, though. You can see the faults in yourself, even if you can't correct them. Mm. I think you know you can see where you've made mistakes, where you've you should have listened. That's you should true. have taken notice of what people were saying instead of going, no, no, look, I know what I'm doing. Don't, yeah. I don't need your help. Thank you very much. Yeah. You know, I've been in this, I've, I've found myself in that situation. I've, I've, I've walked away from rehearsal rooms and then in the evening been in, incredibly embarrassed by my own behavior. That sort of, yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I happen to have been doing this for 45 years. What do you know? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and, and then you think you twat, you know, because all the great ideas really come from young people. 
Mm. All the revolutionary ideas do, I think. They all, the ones who just, because as we were saying right at the beginning of this, they don't, re- they're not really aware of the history of it all. So they're willing to say, what if, you know, and you might just as well say, yeah, well, I think if you look at Shakespeare, he did that, you know. Oh, did he? Oh, I just thought it was a good idea. Well, it is a good idea because Shakespeare did it. Yes. Mm. Yes. So you're absolutely right about that. So don't be embarrassed about having that idea because he also had that idea. But it may have been an idea that Shakespeare hadn't had. Yeah. It might be something that we all go, oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, yeah, of course. That's the way to do it. You know. And and so you should never be, I think, afraid to suggest those things. You know, don't in a room full of um, heavily anecdote up, you know, skillful anecdotalists, I would say. A a piece of advice for young actors, if you're sitting around a table with uh, people who have a great range and and, uh, history of marvellously funny stories that they can tell, listen, don't chip in with your own. And I talk about that uh, from personal experience of being a young actor sitting around with people who'd had amazing careers and worked with all sorts of extraordinary people and had well honed, very funny stories about their careers. And I chipped in with some crap about something that happened to be on the train that morning. And they all looked at me indulgently, but you know, uh, Jimmy Mulville, the great uh, man who owns Hattrick productions. I spoke to him and he talked about a young actor doing that at a thing. And at the end of it, having got to the end of this very, not a very entertaining story at a dinner table full of, you know, people like Richard Wilson and people who could, you know, tell you marvellously funny stories. Uh, He looked at, I think, and uh, Richard looked down the table and said, well, let's hope you can act. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear! Oh dear! Yeah, I know. That's how. To... <laughs> <laughs> when you bring it on yourself, you know. I've been there, done that, made those mistakes. Uh, that's that's just that's a that's a side, you know, piece of side advice I would give. But I, you know, I mean, generally, I mean, that's funny. I don't think you ever meant to put this person down in a way that would would make them go, "Oh shit, I better stop acting." You know, you'd never do that. You'd never, you know. I've seen directors do that to people. I've seen directors do that to young actors. It really annoys me to just pick on them, mm. to sort of attack them because they can. Mm. That's really, it's really cruel. And uh, and then you see these people disappear, and you think, well, it was almost certainly that. You know, it was mm. that that knocking of their confidence. And you do have to have really thick skin, I think, and and not doubt yourself. I mean, I don't know, you know, if after 15 years everybody's still telling you they're not interested, then maybe you sort of go, well, you know, I need to do something else or I need to do this in a different way. I don't necessarily have to give up, but I need to, you know, something's not working. Mm. And, you know, but there will always be people who say to you, you have the faintest idea what you're talking about. You don't know what you're doing, and you're rubbish at this. And you go, right, yeah. Well, I might be at the moment, but give me five minutes. You know, and uh, that's it. That's enough, I think. Or, or to go, okay, right, okay. I'll do something else. Then I'll do it a different way, because I, I can. Because I can. I am inventive. I am creative, and and I'm willing to to create. Mm. And and I'm willing to create in as much as I. I've demonstrated it by doing something that is shit. 
And I think that that's a crucial thing in the whole process of, of being creative <laughs> is that you're willing to throw out the idea, you're willing to put out there the ideas that people then go, that's crap. Well, that's terrible. That's absolutely terrible. It's a really bad idea. You go, is it? Okay. All right. What about this idea then? Mm-hmm. They go, no, that's better. That might work. You know, that's the whole creative process. I think, it, you know, don't wait until you've honed it and polished it and, and then show it to people. Cause then if people say to you, no, that's rubbish, then you really are going to be knocked back. But just, you know, just put it out there, see what people think. That leads me on to a question I like to ask people in general, then it, it how are you with criticism and and feedback and reviews and all those sorts of things? Is that something that's affected you, either positive or negative, or is it something that you can kind of just not really? And I mean, I've, I have to say, I've very rarely been reviewed. I very, you know, I'm just for some reason I'm not one of those people that people do bother taking any notice of. You know, that's fine. I don't. I mean, I, 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 journalists have never been interested in me. I don't know why. They're not interested in in interviewing me. They're not interested in writing about me. They're not interested in my performance. I've had, I can think of the number of reviews I've had, even in plays where I've been playing really large parts. I can think, you know, and Michael Fantasimus is also in it. You know, basically that's, that's the best I get, you know. And so, so I, I don't know how I would take, you know, five paragraphs of, of slowly pulling my performance apart and saying that it was one of the most embarrassing things I'd ever seen on stage. I don't know how I'd take that because I'd never had it. Mm-hmm. You know? And I don't know how I would take, oh, my God, I think I've just discovered the world's greatest actor. You know? Why have we not noticed this before? You know? So who knows? I don't know. I've never won any awards. I've, you know, so I've had a really nice career. Mm. Uh, I, I don't think about those things ever. I don't think about criticism. I do, you know, people do criticize me, but generally in a rehearsal situation and they have the absolute right to, you know, so, it, you know, or there'll be other performers who will come off stage and say, don't do that in the middle of, I was just about to do, oh God, sorry. Yeah. Or, well, no, but it's important that I do it there because, so can you find a different place to do that thing that you want to do? You know, that process, that process of learning to work together in a, in a, you know, in a competitively dangerous world theater, you know, we're all trying to get, be funny or we're all trying to be noticed. Uh, the important thing is working out when it's your turn. You know, some yeah. actors never do. Some actors just say, it's my turn, my turn all the time. If you, you want, you want a turn, fight for it. You know, I don't enjoy working with those people and they're few and far between, but they do exist. As far as I'm concerned, the moment they walk on stage, it's their job to make the audience look at them. It's their job to be, I'm on stage now, so that's it. You know, I don't, you know, don't care. I know I'm at the back carrying a spear, but, you know, I'm on stage. Yeah, so I'm yeah, yeah. My job, my job to give the audience something to look at. This is my stage, that one. Yeah, it, it does happen. But, um, you know, I, it's all right. What you do is you you know there are ways we all know the ways particularly if you've done it for a while you all know the ways of of drawing the attention of people. When I was um when I was a young man, I worked with the marvelous actor Sir Anthony Quayle, who you may not know, but our people the listeners may not know. Look him up. He just did some really brilliant films. He did some terrible films as well because he spent a ten years of his life, maybe fifteen years of his life, living on a forty foot catch, which he and his wife used to sail all over the world, and he would do work according to whether he could sail to it. <laughs> and that's that's a that's a career. That's what I call a bloody career. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. 
that's what he had, that's why he described it. He said, well, why did you do that? God, I saw that terrible Tarzan film you did the other day. Ah, yes. Well, you see, that was North Africa. And, uh, and we were, we were in the Mediterranean anyway. <laughs> he just went, yeah, yeah, sure. But he did fantastic films. And also he's largely responsible for the creation of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Not that many people know that. He formed it and took great actors up to Stratford when it was the Memorial Theatre before it became the Royal Shakespeare Company. And then Peter Hall took it over and it became the great monolith it is. But up until that point, you know, so he took Peter O'Toole, Richard Burton, Peggy Ashcroft, you know, these great tomes of the great, you know, stars of, of the past. As young actors, he took them up to Stratford, persuaded them to go and work in, you know, just outside Birmingham in a, in a regional theatre doing Shakespeare. And so that's pretty impressive. So he knew his stuff. He was a, he was a great man, but um, we were doing a play together and I remember him at one point saying, Oh no, 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 actually you're right, Mike. No, no, this is re- it's very important that the audience hear what you're saying. And, and in fact, they should be concentrating on it because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an important moment in the play. Yeah. I tell you what, I feel that I'm rather dominating this scene. So I, I, you know, cause I, here I am right in the middle that the plays about me. So I'll, I'll disappear for a bit. I'll go away. I'll go and stand over here by the fireplace. And I went, Oh, okay. All right, Tony. Thanks. And thought, what a lovely, lovely thing to do. A generous actor. I'm going to be like that when I get older. God, I love him, you know? And it was, then we did it in front of an audience. And I was always aware every night that during that scene, the entire audience were looking at this man standing by the fireplace <laughs> thinking, why isn't he looking at us? He's just staring into the fire. What's he thinking? I wonder what he's thinking about and taking, they took no notice of me at all. And he absolutely knew that's what he was doing. He was going, you know, it was a more powerful thing to walk away from the scene and separate yourself. So that to me is, I think is brilliant. You know, it's joyous. That's an example of someone with years and years of, of stage skill. And that's the sort of thing you can do to one of those actors who thinks, okay, I'm on stage. So it's all about people looking at me. At that moment, you go, yeah, sure, sure. You go and stand down the front there. Yeah, great. I'm just going to stand up here and uh, wind the clock. You know? And then everybody's thinking, why is he winding the clock? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Another question I like to ask people is, what's your definition of success, whether it's a, a career-wise or project-wise? When has something really uh, worked? Success? Mm. I mean, you do think... Uh, Career-wise, I would say success would be to continue to work, mm-hmm. keep working. Uh, yeah, and when you finish one job, you don't wait long before you go to another. You know? And that has been my career, and I'm very fortunate that that's generally been the case. You know? More recently, there have been moments where you know you sort of go, oh, it's all gone a bit quiet. But, uh, for, certainly for the first 35 years of my career, I, I didn't stop. I just went from job to job to job. And that, to me, was success. Completely exactly what I wanted to do. It meant I was doing the job I wanted to do, and I was doing it all the time. Uh, and I was you know, doing all sorts of different things in it. I was doing films and television and theater and radio and voiceovers and commercial stuff. And you know, So it just never stopped. It was great. It was really lovely. Um, success of, of a thing, and that's a difficult one. Because you, I'm well aware of having been in things that I would regard as being incredibly successful because they were gorgeous and because they were just 
they just worked perfectly. And then I'm aware that probably a thousand people over a two week period saw that, saw that thing in a theater and that's it. Then it's gone. Nobody will ever see it again. It, It doesn't exist. So it's ephemeral and, uh, and gone. And so I'm aware that, that, um, you know, people say, well, why would you see that as being successful? I say, because it was really brilliant. It was, a, you know, one of the best things I've ever done. Everything I did that night in those one night, I was really happy with. I was, I sort of came out of the theater thinking, yeah, I did that the way I wanted to do it right the way through. That's amazing. I can't think of a moment in it where I went, oh, no, I should have done that. You know, it just all clicked. It's really weird. And so those are definitely, that's success. That's success to me because it's all ephemeral, really. Even the stuff that you think is massive, you know, you can talk to a young person. Do they remember, do they know who Greta Garbo is? No. And yet the world adored her. Everybody had a picture or every soldier in the second world war had a picture of her inside his, his wallet. You know, it's, it's, it's so, it it doesn't matter. Fame and those things don't matter. And uh, and a number of people who who recognise something and say it's great don't really matter. They matter financially. It's very nice to have a great big hit and to get the rewards, financial rewards you get from something like that. And in fact, the opening up of doors that those sort of things create. The people being willing to see you because oh you're in that. Oh right, okay, fine. Well, let's get you in for this then. You know, that's very useful. Um, but, you know, in the end, they're not going to matter. You know, I can name to you, I can name a number of television things that I've been in over the years that, you know, uh, I'm very proud of. I'm very, I'm definitely my best televisual performance was in a thing that nobody will see again. Uh, not for a very long time, I think, because it was, because it uh, sadly, it was working with um, Chris Langham, who was a marvelous comic actor, but also a man who, watched really awful pornography on on uh well not pornography of just violence against children mm. but there we are there we are so that's a it's a very sad thing mm. it's a, a very sad thing and and rightly people don't put that stuff on the television and i'm willing for them not to watch my performance in it but i am proud of it i am proud of the performance i gave uh but you know there you are it's gone mm. that's all right mm. it doesn't matter you know and actually, when people say to me, oh, you're right, I've seen you on the telly recently, and I go, well, you've been watching the wrong telly. Because you know? I am on there. Yeah. You know? Well, you know, I'm, I'm on there, but it doesn't, you know, the word television has changed. You know, people who, uh, you know, know, have known me for a long time, so basically, you know, shopkeepers or people in my town who I haven't seen every day for the last 35 years walk past them and say, hiya. They'll say to me, all right, gone a bit quiet, is it? And you go, no, no, <laughs> no, do you, do you watch? Um, and then, you know, they, they watch they watch Sky all the time. Well, I'm not on Sky. You know? I'm on something else. You know, it's all right. And there are so many choices now that you're never going to be back to the situation where, you know, I was in EastEnders for about three months at one point. I couldn't walk down the street. It was ridiculous. Everywhere I went, every, every 40, 50 feet, somebody would say, all right, vicar. And I was playing a vicar in EastEnders. You think, so well, that's incredible, isn't it? Mm. The number of people that everybody was watching that. And it was only half the population was watching EastEnders. You think it's, it's crazy. And they all were watching it carefully enough to recognize me walking down the street in the opposite direction. 
Uh, so uh, that world will never happen again, mm. I don't think. Mm. You know? yeah. and, and anyway, if I wanted fame, you know, if I wanted fame, which uh, when you, people talk about fame, what they mean is being known, everybody to know who I am. I want, you know, people to, when my name is mentioned, people know who I am. Well, I would say to them the words Lee Harvey Oswald, because everybody knows who, he, who that person is, and most of the world knows what he did. So if you want the world to remember you for the rest of the time, then you're afraid you have to do something like that because they won't remember, you know, they don't remember Edmund Keane, even though, you know, he was the greatest actor in the world at one point. Mm. So, you know, don't go into my profession with the idea of becoming famous because it's absurd. You know, it's just, it's irrelevant, absolutely irrelevant. Something I just wanted to mention, uh, one thing that I picked up on your podcast, I, I can't remember which episode, it might have been with David Mitchell, where you were talking about Andy Hamilton mm. um, casting you several times, but kind of having an idea of the, writing a character and being like, this is going to be great for Mike. And that <laughs> persona is not necessarily the one that you would imagine you would be presenting to the world. Can you tell us a bit about no. that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, it is clearly it, it makes you realise something about yourself, you know, because he always casts me as a sort of a. I mean, I, you know, I may well have come across on this podcast as exactly the man that he would cast me as, which is someone who who thinks that he's terribly entertaining, and and everybody else thinks, will you just shut up? <laughs> Because that's all, often the man I get cast as is a man who, you know, thinks he's witty and funny and entertaining and the world wants to listen to him and, you know, he's really good at his job and everybody loves him, you know. And in fact, everybody thinks he's a bit of an idiot and goes on too much <laughs> and also has a bit of a temper, can't put up with things, you know, not going his way. <laughs> And that's the part that Andy often cast me as, although he has cast me as, you know, the Archangel Gabriel. So <laughs> not always that. Very but then again, similar. actually, the, yeah, the, well, as it turned out, the Archangel Gabriel was a man saying, oh, for goodness sake, look, can you just get on with it? <laughs> I've got lots to do, you know. I mean, you, you wouldn't believe the list of things that God's given me to do today. So, you know, uh, yeah, it was a similar man. <laughs> so, you know, yeah, Andy, well, I'm very privileged to have had Andy Hamilton in my life. And uh, for him to have the regard he has for me, you know, to, to sort of go, it happened just the other day. I mean, uh, I, I spoke to him the other, he rang the other day and said, what are you doing in February, Mike? And I went, nothing. He went, oh, good, yeah, yeah, and I think I've got a part for you. Yeah, doing this, doing this sitcom with Brenda Blethyn. You know Brenda, don't you? I said, yeah, I do, yeah. And then I told him that we did a play together mm -hmm. where every night I had to cup her breasts in my hand and uh, – and she would was, pretend. Was, did that start as an improv as well? Sadly, no. No, <laughs> no. It was in the script. And uh, uh, one night I did improv slightly. Uh, yes, I, she, I used to cup her hands and she used to pretend to find it astonishingly exciting because she was a very naive, sort of suburban, innocent woman. And I was supposedly a sort of a B-movie star. Uh, it's a funny play. Strange thing. Anyway, I'd, I would do this scene and i just sort of just cup her hands in my, in, you know, her breasts in my hands. And then one night I put her breasts in my hands and then I moved my hands. Like I swiveled them. And she, f she basically fell to the ground. <laughs> and I thought, oh shit. 
And afterwards, I said, you're right. What was the matter? She said, I've got very sensitive nipples. (laughs) (laughs) She's a brilliant woman. A brilliant woman. So, yeah, so that would be lovely. You know, I mean, and that's sort of how my career goes. You know, people ringing Mm -hmm. up and saying, you fancy doing this? And you go, yeah, of course I do. I'm I'm aware that I live in a a rarefied world. Uh, Lucky man. Great. Mike, that's been absolutely fascinating. If people want to catch up with the podcast, just tell us a bit about that. Remind us what it's called. It's called My Time Capsule. So basically, if you look that up, there's nothing else called My Time Capsule. <laughs> that's the thing. Look it up. And it's just me talking to, uh, to a large extent, a bunch of friends, but also I've now branched out into people I've never met before, which is really lovely. And I'm talking to them about the five things in their life that they would like to preserve in a time capsule, four things that they love and one thing that they they're glad to get rid of and that's it great mike thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me i've really enjoyed that that's been lovely yes i, I do love the sound of my own voice <laughs> i love the sound of your voice too so that's okay <laughs> thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that join us next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast until then please subscribe rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects i'm working thank you goodbye goodbye